Well, it's really, really great to be here again this morning. I don't know how many of you were here back in uh, 2020, but uh, Sandy and I were here then as well. I'll give them another minute. I forgot to ask you to say, Boker Tov. I'm not going to say Shalom this morning, okay? Boker Tov. That's great. You know what that means? Good morning. Anyway, it's re really a pleasure to be back here again. I'm sorry that Pastor Tim is not here and all, and uh, we'll continue to pray for him, that the Lord will continue to minister to him and bring him back to full health. I'm sure you guys are longing for him to be back with you. Well, I'm often asked by my Jewish people, if Jesus is the Messiah, then why isn't he spoken of in the Old Testament? And the interesting thing is that most of my people have never studied or read the Old Testament. I know that might come as a surprise to you because we're the people of the book, right? And you know, when I was growing up in New York, I went to a conservative synagogue as well as to Hebrew school. That's like an after, day, uh, after school program, uh, two afternoons a week. And then Sunday mornings, I used to pull the covers over my head and hope my parents wouldn't make me go. Um, but when we went to Hebrew school, I learned how to chant the traditional Jewish prayers. I read and I wrote in Hebrew, and I became familiar with some of the more famous Bible stories. But when it came to Messianic prophecy, these were not studied. In fact, all that I ever knew about the Messiah is what I was taught and what most Jewish people know is the Messiah hasn't come yet. And when he comes, he's going to bring peace to the world. That's all I knew. So imagine my surprise that when I was 17 years old and was shown Messianic prophecy, for the first time, I realized that much was written about the Messiah and that he, in fact, had already come and he was coming again. So this morning, I'd like to take some time and look at some of those passages where we can see Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, but before we do, I think a good place for us to begin is to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 39 is our starting point. So let's turn to John 5, verse 39. And Jesus is speaking here, and he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. So I think that the scriptures speak of Jesus. It speaks of the promise of eternal life, of forgiveness and eternal life. And he says, These are the scriptures that testify about me. And he, consent, he continues, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me in verse 46. And also, when we look at the four Gospels, we find that the Bible repeats a phrase again and again. This event, whatever it might have been, happened so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which say, followed by a prophecy that's mentioned from the Old Testament. In fact, when it comes to the events of Jesus' life, the Bible quotes over 30 such prophecies. 
The last Old Testament prophet, Malachi, who wrote around 450 BC, uh, was the last one, of course, to write. Now, therefore, every one of these 30 prophecies, if you think about it, was written at least four centuries before Jesus came into the world. And some of them go as far back as 15 centuries, if you can imagine that, before he was even born. Now, I remember an account when Jesus met a couple of men as they were on their way from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. Maybe you remember this too. And this was after his resurrection. And he joined them on the walk, which was for a distance of about seven miles. So I figure it must have taken them at least three hours to do this walk, if you picture Jerusalem and the hills around it. There were no sidewalks and no, no other conveniences, okay? And it was very hilly. So let's read from the Gospel of Luke now about this conversation that they had, okay? And this is in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we read, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things that had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, that Jesus himself approached, and he began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visitor visiting Jerusalem? and unaware of the things which had happened here in these days. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. <clears throat> but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning <clears throat> and they did not find his body. Uh, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had also said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that uh, for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them, the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. I'm going to take a drink of water here. So, um, it's, it's hard to imagine how those two guys must have felt as they walked along. They had just seen 
the one that they thought was the Messiah, the king of Israel, died. All their hopes, all their dreams, their joy was hanging on a cross. It's the third day since Jesus was killed. And time is beginning to run out. You see, in Jewish folklore, the soul hovers near the dead body for a period of three days. And after that, <clears throat> the face begins to lose its recognition and this, this spirit departs. And so um, time is running out, okay? And these guys might have had a glimmer of hope that somehow there was still a chance that Jesus' spirit might reunite with his body. They start going into what the women had said. And finally, Jesus can't take it any longer. He says, oh, foolish men, slow to understand, if you will, slow to believe. And then Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them all the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. The threefold division of the Old Testament that Jesus mentions just a few verses later in verse 44 is the way that the Jewish Bible is organized today. The law, we call it the Torah, the prophets, or the Navim, and the writings, Chetuvim. And Jesus walked along with Cleopas and his buddy for several hours explaining how those scriptures spoke of him. And that's exactly what I'd like to do this morning with you. I want us to go back now and do a little tour of the Old Testament and look at some of the 30 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Now, I know you want to eat lunch today, right? So we're not going to go all, through all 30, okay? But we're going to go pretty fast. I'm going to be looking at a couple of prophecies from each of these three divisions, the three divisions the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. So beginning with the Torah, the five books of Moses, in Genesis 3.15, we find the first messianic prophecy, if you will, written around 1500 BC. In the story of the Garden of Eden, we read a curse that God puts on the serpent, who, of course, we later discover to be Satan, who is the enemy of God, and that curse actually contains a blessing to the woman and to the people who come after her. The prophecy reads, and again, this is in Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So we learn three things here. First, the child who is to be born is to defeat the serpent, and the child is a child of a woman. Now, that's not a big deal, right? <clears throat> Everyone who is born is born of a woman, right? Well, not in Judaism. You see, Abraham begot Isaac. Where was Sarah, right? Isaac begot Jacob. Where was Rebekah? You see, in the Jewish scriptures, men, okay, men have children in Judaism, not biologically, of course, but genealogically. So the Bible could have made a genealogical statement, as it does everywhere else in the Torah, 
that the woman is, I'm sorry, that the child is the son of a man, right? But it doesn't. It starts with an exception. This child is the son of a woman. So it doesn't exactly say the virgin birth, but it sure anticipates it, doesn't it? And second, <clears throat> we learn that this child would bruise the head of the serpent. And I believe that this is a picture of conquest when you think about it, and victory. It's a fatal blow when you hit somebody on the head. If any of you, like me, true confession, watch shows like, you know, um, what, uh, like, uh, what is it again? Law and order and these kinds of things, right? And you see these mysteries, you know, you don't have to say that you watch it, okay? I'm the one that's confessing here this morning. But you see stories where people get hit over the head and then, you know, the rest, right? They're gone. And so the same thing here, right? But it also says that the sun would be bruised on the heel. Now, if you've ever had an Achilles heel or pain in your heel, you know, it's, it's pretty harsh. It can be pretty painful. But it's not deadly, right? So there's a difference between the two. And then another prophecy from the Torah is found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 to 19. And this also, of course, is written around 1500 BC, where God tells Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, that he will speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In Judaism, Moses was the greatest prophet who ever lived. If you were to ask a Jewish person if there was ever a prophet like Moses, you know what they tell you? Nope, he's the only one. He's the greatest prophet who ever lived. And the Torah's closing words in Deuteronomy give us a clue that my people should be looking for a prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 34 records Moses' death. So obviously, who didn't write it? Moses, right? If it's recording Moses' death. Moses didn't write that portion. So it's it's possible now that Joshua wrote it, And in verse 9 of chapter 34, he tells us that Moses laid hands on him to transfer leadership to him. But Joshua tells us in verse 10 of chapter 34, since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses. In other words, I'm not him, folks. I'm not the prophet that Moses had spoken of, right, in chapter 18. So be on the lookout. He's still to come. And then when John the Baptist later on bursts on the scene in prophetic garb and with a prophet's voice, do you remember that the Pharisees came to him? And do you remember what they asked him? They said, are you the prophet? Remember that? With a capital P, if you look at that. They were waiting and they were looking for this prophet that would be like Moses. But John said, no. There's one who's coming after me who's greater than me. So the Torah, the five books of Moses, point forward 
to one who is yet to come that our New Testament identifies as Jesus. And then looking at the prophets section of the, of the Old Testament, um, there are a couple of references that I'd like us to look at. The first is in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And I want you to turn there with me right now, okay? Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which was written around 700 B.C., okay, if you're taking notes. So Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. You see, in this 8th century BC, this prophet writes that a coming ruler of Israel would be born in Bethlehem Ephratah. You notice that term, Ephratah, that's added. Why? Okay, when we sing, O little town of Bethlehem, we don't sing, O little town of Bethlehem Ephratah, right? But the reason is, this prophecy is very specific because there were other towns called Bethlehem, just like even today. Even in the U.S., we have Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, right? So why Bethlehem Ephrata? Because God wanted to be very specific in where this one who was to come was to be born. All right? Now, um, note what else Micah tells us. He says that this one's beginnings are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now, the words in Hebrew are a lot stronger than they are in English. One of the words is mikadem, which means from the east. In other words, from before the sun rises in the east or eternity past. And the second word, meyame olam, means from days of eternity. Now, think about it for a minute. Who do we know is an eternal being? It's only one I know. It's God, right? So somehow... God takes on flesh and is born in Bethlehem Ephratah. And then the next prophecy, um, and I believe the most significant, it made the most impact in my life when I first heard it, is Isaiah chapter 53, which was written around 725 BC. And this prophecy is the clearest one chapter description of the Messiah in the entire Old Testament, maybe in the entire Bible. And very important for those of us seeking to bring the truth of Yeshua to the Jewish people. And I'm curious, how many of you know somebody Jewish? Okay, great, that's terrific. You'll want to write that one down, Isaiah chapter 53, okay? Um, And a prophet... This prophet describes a suffering servant, right? Who gives his life as a guilt offering for many people. It describes him as someone who would be rejected, who would be hated. And though he had done no wrong, but through his death, sins would be forgiven. Now, this even hints, this passage, if you look toward the end of chapter 53, that he would be raised from the dead. 
the word says, and after the suffering of his soul, he would see the light of life, okay? But the problem my people face today is the same that was faced by the disciples. Even in the days of Jesus, Israel was not waiting for a suffering servant Messiah to come. They were waiting for a triumphant king like David who would right all wrongs, who would place Israel back in its rightful place, usher in an age to come where the lion and the lamb would lie down together, right? And bring peace to the world. Listen, if you had to choose between Superman and Clark Kent, who would you choose, right? They were looking for Superman, right? Who would redeem them out of the hands of the Romans. And there Jesus was, hanging from a cross, right? Okay. Now, I want us to look at two passages uh, about the Messiah from the writings, from uh, the writings, okay? Uh, In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 26, which was written around 600 B.C., we find more clues about the coming Messiah. This is a really tough one, I have to admit. But there are some things that are very clear here. And let's turn there. I want you to turn there first. And we're going to read it. Daniel 9. Just have to wait for me. I'm using the Bible rather than my phone today. <clears throat> I'm old school for this morning. Okay. 924 to 26. It says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal of vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So it's clear from this um, that the Messiah was supposed to come within a specific number of years after the Persian king Cyrus issued the decree that the Jewish people who had been in captivity by the Babylonians and then after the Babylonian captivity, after Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus and the Persians took over that region and Cyrus issued a decree for the Israelites to be able to go back if they chose to the Jewish people to go back to the land of Israel, right? And so it gives specific information. Now, we talk about these weeks of years. Okay, we're not talking about a literal seven-day week, but even the rabbis would acknowledge the fact that these weeks are weeks of years. So in other words, for each week, it would represent seven years. So if you think about the totality of the 70 weeks, you're talking about 490 years if you're 
pretty good at math, right? Seven times 70, 490 years. And it's believed that Cyrus issued the decree to rebuild Jerusalem um, around 490 or so, okay? So if you think about it, it's, it breaks it down to 62 and the seven weeks, but there's one week left over, okay? And we think of the future, you know, as the seven years of tribulation, which has not happened yet, you know, at least my thinking. Okay, so that's to give you an idea. I told you, very complicated when it comes to figuring out the exact timing on all of this. Now, in verse 6, 26, it tells us that the Messiah would be cut off. And what do we think of when we think of cut off? At least I think that way, that he would die. Again, not exactly the popular image of a Messiah figure. But we also get an important clue as to when he will die. He will die before the city and the sanctuary are destroyed. The second time. Remember, it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians way back before that, right? Uh, around 586 BC. But uh, apparently... The temple, the sanctuary would be rebuilt. And of course, during Jesus' day, there was a second temple, okay? And it wasn't destroyed yet. When did that destruction take place? And by whom? 70 AD. By who? The Romans, right? So if that's the case, and we're looking at this prophecy, <clears throat> if this is all true, the Messiah would have had to have come before 70 AD, before the destruction of the temple, the second temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, right? Okay, now what's Daniel's main point here? That the Messiah must come and die um, after the building of Jerusalem and the temple and before the destruction of it. And again, so you, you get the picture, I think. Um, now, finally, if you were to back up to verse 24, Daniel tells us what this is all about. <clears throat> the purpose of the Messiah's death is to bring in everlasting righteousness, to forgive sins, and to put an end to iniquity, to sin. The purpose of the death of Messiah was not to defeat political and military enemies, as the, the Jewish people were hoping for, and to give Israel a piece of property. It was to forgive sins and to make us clean before God. Now, I have to tell you, this passage is so controversial in Judaism that the rabbis have actually pronounced a curse on those who would try to calculate the Messiah's advent from it. In fact, one of the most famous rabbis by the name of Maimonides um, he said, Daniel has elucidated, elucidated, made known, I think, uh, to us the knowledge of the times, of the end times. However, since they are secret, the wise, meaning the rabbis, have barred the calculation of the days of Messiah's coming so that the untutored peoples, okay, untutored, that means they're not as educated as us, right? Um, will not be led astray when they see that the end times have already come. But there's no sign of Messiah. 
You see, centuries before him, another rabbi by the name of Samuel Bar Nachmani commented on this passage as well, saying, Blasted be the bones of those who would calculate the end. Now, you know what? If you don't want your, bla- your bones to be blasted, don't read that pa- prophecy, okay? <clears throat> All right. So they knew what the first century historian Josephus had said. Daniel not only predicted the future like the other prophets, but specified when the events would happen. So that's the first prophecy from the writings. The second one is in Psalm 22, another really great prophecy if you're sharing with a Jewish friend. It was written by King David around 950 BC. So think about it. A thousand years before Jesus came into the world. It's known also as a crucifixion psalm. The psalm quoted by our Messiah while hanging on the cross paying for our sins. King David wrote this psalm, like I said, almost a thousand years earlier, some 300 years before crucifixion even came into existence, okay? Prophetically, he wrote things that modern doctors now say are surprisingly clinical descriptions of the sufferings of one who would be crucified. All my bones are out of joint. My strength is dried up. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. They pierced my hands and my feet. It describes those who ridiculed him as he hung on the cross, who despised him, who shook their heads at him, and who cast lots for his clothing. And it was the first line of Psalm 22 that Jesus shouted out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I heard one rabbi say that this proves that Jesus died in confusion and despair, but I think he missed the point. You know, Jesus knew that as he quoted from this song, right, from the first verse, people would begin rehearsing in their minds the rest of the song. Just like today, if I were to say, Amazing grace, right? If I were to sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. There you go. So you see what I mean? When Jesus recited that part of the psalm, it was to remind people of what the rest of the psalm had to say about him, okay? And you know what? That's one other one, a really great one. And if we had time, we could talk for hours about Jesus in the Old Testament, even as he did with the two guys on the way to Emmaus. Um, We could look at more prophecies. We could talk about other ways that Jesus is actually mentioned in the Old Testament. Think about it. The awesome angel of the Lord. If you've ever done a study on the angel of the Lord. The sacrificial system. The rock in the wilderness, which was struck, right? The holidays that point to him, the tabernacle, the priesthood, and other character types that foreshadow him. Hebrew words and poems that all reveal him. The New Testament is in the old concealed, and the old is in the New Testament revealed, right? 
So what's the point of all this? Well, I heard the story once of a pastor who said that one day he was talking with a research scientist, a mathematician who had formerly been employed by the Pentagon, okay, who researched the probability of one and the same person fulfilling all of the 30 prophecies about Messiah. She calculated the probability was one times 10 with a hundred zeros after it. So even if these numbers are close to being right, then the idea that the Bible just got it lucky in getting all of this right is completely insane, wouldn't it be? Instead, the only proposition that makes any sense is that the Bible is exactly what it claims to be. And this is how a friend um, had put it. A supernatural book from a supernatural God giving us supernatural truth about a supernatural Messiah who through the cross offers a supernatural relationship with God so we can live a supernatural life that has a supernatural destination in heaven at its end, right? Okay. So remember, the odds of anyone fulfilling 30 prophecies, 30 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah are one with a hundred zeros after it. So until someone can figure out how to undo one with a hundred zeros after it, we're sitting pretty secure in our faith, I'd say, right? So we can stick with the faith that was once delivered to the saints, as, Judah, as Jude, the book of Jude, puts it. And more importantly, when it's all said and done, we're in eternity. We're in eternity. And that's, we're going to be glad that we did believe in him, right? Okay. So let's close in a word of prayer right now. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, for making yourself known to us in the 30-plus prophecies of the Old Testament. Lord, I pray that uh, as we continue the service this morning, that you continue to encourage us um, and that you uh, bless each one. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. You guys, sorry, you need to sit down again or stand here for a few minutes. You didn't get the note, I guess. We'll just stand here. Okay, great. I'm going to be sharing about the work of Jews for Jesus now for just a bit. When you came in, okay, yeah. okay, it's going cool. to be about five, seven minutes. Oh, without me? Yeah, without Oh, you. I thought I was going to get to No, Kevin. Oh. I'm sorry. You know what? I'm never going to get invited back here again. I know that. <clears throat> anyway, when you came in, you should have received one of these cards that has Sandy and my picture on it. It's a uh, card to, to receive our free Jews for Jesus newsletter. If you fill it out. And on the screen, we're going to be showing a QR code right now. If you guys can help me out with that. Some of you maybe don't have pens. Maybe you don't like to deal with paper and write things down. Well, if you use that QR code and you capture it, it will take you to the place at our website to be able to sign up for our free newsletter online. And I'll tell you, uh, two reasons why I'd like you to get our free newsletter. The first reason is because we want to help you to be more effective in reaching out to your Jewish friends with the gospel. And I saw there were loads of you 
who know Jewish people. And by the way, for filling out the card this morning, Sandy and I want to send you a copy of our testimony booklet called Tackling Tradition, Two, Tru Two Jews, One Truth. Because for everyone who knows somebody who's Jewish, I want you to sign up for the newsletter or fill out the card. We want to mail it to you because we want you to read it. We want you to loan it to your Jewish friend. Just loan it, not give it to them. Because if you give it to them, it's liable to end up in the circular file, if you know what I mean. But if you loan it to them, you'll be able to ask them in a week or two. So what do you think of the booklet that I, gave, I lent to you, right? So that's one reason we want you to get the newsletter. The other reason is I want you to be able to pray for us effectively. And our newsletter shares what we do as full-time missionaries. One thing I do quite a bit of is I visit with Jewish people on a one-to-one -one basis to share the gospel with them. And I'm part of our online evangelism team. So what I do in part is I go to our website. We have something called live chat. It's kind of like if you have a problem with PG&E with your bill and you don't want to call them and you go to their website and you end up chatting with somebody. Well, we do the same thing at our website, okay? And through that, I get to meet Jewish people sometimes who are searching. It's a great way to be anonymous, you know what I mean? Not to give your name and all that information out. And the short story, there's a woman that I met about a year and a half ago by the name of Sharon, who lives in Southern California. She's in her mid-70s. Her son is a believer, Jewish believer. And uh, he encouraged her to come to our website. And she ended up coming, and I happened to be online, and we began to chat. And I discovered Sharon seemed really open to talking. So I asked her if she'd be open to a phone call. So we got to talking. She told me, you know what? I could never accept Jesus as my Messiah because I feel like I, I was a traitor to my people. And so I said, well, would you be open to looking at the scriptures? And she was. And we started meeting by phone and then finally through FaceTime. And it was a year ago, I think last month, that Sharon committed her life to the Lord. And, and you know, so through... Through the internet, that's become a way for us to be able to reach a lot of people throughout the world, really, with the gospel. I also take part in what we call Jewish immersion. Now, it's not a Jewish baptism, okay? What it is, it's getting an immer immersed with our Jewish people in Jewish classes, things like that. So, for instance, I take a tourist study class with uh, a local synagogue on Friday mornings, every Friday morning. And I've built relationships with the guys that are there, the women. And the rabbi knows I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus, as do everybody else. They still welcome me, and I've had chances to speak with people individually about Jesus. Obviously, I can't present the gospel, you know, in the Torah class, but I can certainly give a biblical perspective to what we're looking at and get to share with people, either chatting with them, because we're doing online right now with the pandemic, which has been great because I can chat individually without everybody seeing it. And also, I meet with people like at Starbucks to do things like that, to talk with them. So that's another thing I do. And that's why we want your prayers. Also, a couple of other ways to be involved today. Um, there's a resource, a connection table in the back with some free literature on one side of the table, some sample newsletters and other helpful pamphlets. On the other side, some not-so-free stuff. We've got some Jewish gospel music on CDs, and we also have various books 
Um, this one I'm highlighting is by Rich Robinson, one of my co-workers, called Christ and the Sabbath. If you've wondered about what, what does the Sabbath mean and how is Jesus involved in all of that, great book. And then the last way to be involved is through financial support of the Lord leads you to give. Later on at the end of the service is a basket on our table where you can give. And whether or not you give this morning, okay, we want you to drop the card in there so we can send you our free newsletter and send you the testimony booklet too. One last thing I'm going to ask of you, it's really short. We have a two and a half minute video which shares about what our ministry is doing worldwide right now with a brief message from our executive director. So if we can show that video right now, and then hope to see you back there at the end. Thank you. Jesus seemed like he could be the Messiah, but I'm Jewish. The person said to me, have you ever heard of Jews for Jesus? As a Jewish person, when I started to follow Jesus, people would question if you're still Jewish, if you believe in Jesus. What I wish someone had told me when I first came to faith in Jesus is that I could have a thriving Jewish identity and a thriving faith in Jesus together and not have to choose between the two. The reality is all of the first believers in Jesus were Jewish. They saw him as the promise of the Messiah. I want to invite you to join Jews for Jesus as we relentlessly pursue God's plan for the salvation of the Jewish people. Most Jewish people in the world have never heard the gospel, and together we get to change that. You make it possible for me, as a missionary, to engage with not yet believing Jewish people and to tell them that God loves them. And in a sense, it's not really us doing it, it's Him doing it. We're just the ones who are carrying the message. Go and tell. That's what Jews for Jesus is best known for. It's that proclamation of the gospel out on the streets, meeting one-to-one. -one. Come and see. And that is where we invite Jewish people to come into an environment, a community, a small group, a Bible study, and they can see the dynamic of a vibrant community of Jewish believers in Jesus. Love and serve. There's so many needs. And so we go out there lovingly feeding people, even as Jesus fed and met needs. And it opens people up to the gospel. Through your support, we can show Jewish people how beautiful God is, how beautiful Jesus is, and how beautiful the gospel is. Every week around the world, Jews for Jesus welcomes new Jewish brothers and sisters into the family of Messiah. I'm so thankful for people like you who love the Jewish people and want them to see who Jesus is. If your heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, you're going to find yourself loving the same things that God loves. You're going to enter into His passion for His people. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that we've been waiting for. All that the Jewish prophets have talked about, all that God has spoken to us, every Jewish person deserves to hear the truth about Jesus. We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Come and see.